This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. If you're busy like me and you're trying to catch your kids' games, it's important to have somewhere where you can go to find a good hotel. We're all over the place. Sometimes, you know, we're in Florida, we'll be in New York, we want to take the wife on a quick vacation and get away. Whether you're looking for a relaxing getaway or heading out of town to see the playoffs, Hotels.com app has a perfect hotel for every trip. Compare up to five hotels side by side so you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings without having to switch back and forth between options. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. There's a lot that could impress you about the all-new Honda Prologue EV. True, it's got class-leading passenger space and clean, thoughtful design and intuitive technology. But what really sets the Prologue apart from the competition is that it's more than an EV. It's a Honda. Honda, the power of dreams. Visit honda.com slash prologue to learn more. Shouldn't you be at work? When the seagull follows a trawler, it's because they think sardines will be thrown into the sea. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. I'll have a low-fat pizza or something like that, or a few biscuits and some milk on a Sunday. And you can pair up if you like. And you can fucking pick someone else to help you and you can bring your fucking dinner. Oh, a magnificent goal from Darren Huckabee! Now, you know him better than anybody probably. Do you back him to score quickly, yes or no? Yes. Oh, oh, has no! Hello and welcome to Queenly Kevin. Will he score? I'm Chris Cole. Joining me as always, Josh Whittacombe. Hello. And Brian Dean. How you been? It's Michael Marden. Oh, wait. No. He's no. missed. He, he's not up in time. We're recording this he's in not, the morning. No, we're, we're recording this. In, full disclosure, we're recording it last minute, aren't we? It's very much the uh, Liverpool v Arsenal. We thought we'd recorded an intro to this podcast and we haven't. That's the full disclosure. <laughs> facts disclosed. Oh, well, now we're, now we're disclosing facts. Who wants some Alexi Lalas facts? Are we starting with that straight off the bat? I think so, don't you? Okay, well, let's do the... Uh, let's People do are the, desperate um, for more Alexi Lalas facts. Okay, This cool, is let's... a new feature that I can tell... Oh, is it? Is, ...is just lighting up the Quitly Kevin fan base. Oh, right, so this doesn't count as... um as uh, electronic post bag. No, this is this needs its own its own little sting. It I don't think I, mean, I don't think we can just do that on Michael now when we're recording <laughs> this at the absolute last minute. I don't okay. I don't I don't think we can do a sting at this stage of the game. <laughs> but um I'm I'm happy to wave through the feature. Okay, here it comes. Alexi Lalas facts. Thank you to uh, this is a, a Finnish listener. I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher your name yeah. I'm sure. Vili Yarvenen um, he says, he's been listening to the show in Finland for many years. You guys asked for random facts about Alexi Lalas. He said, he's attached a clipping from the World Cup Extra of Finnish yellow press magazine Ilta Sonomat. And the headline is, Alexi Lalas is the bright spot of USA. Hobbies, sex and playing guitar. He says, I was 10 years old in 1994 and I still remember reading that, but that bit back then and thinking, wow, what a guy. He's taken the liberty yeah. to translate uh, the interview from Finnish about Lalas. Here it comes. Yeah. Alexi Lalas is one of the key players in the US team. He spends his time wobbling his beard and playing guitar in the cellar clubs at New York with his band, the Gypsies. Besides playing music, the cheery centre half loves to get laid. He was very relieved. <laughs> he was very relieved when the US head coach Bora Milutinovic. Oh man, Mil- yeah. Milutinovic. 
Yeah, decided yeah. that he won't be demanding for, for, uh, that his team become full celibate. Sex is very important. Was that, is that a thing that could have been on the table? No pun intended. I always remember boxers. Boxers say that a lot, don't yeah, they? Yeah, boxers, isn't it? But I d- I've never heard about footballers. No, no. I don't know, I don't th- I don't know how much difference it would make. Uh, Alexa yeah. Lala says, sex is very important for me. I've tried for many years to get to the so-called shooting distance, so I won't be needing any kind of restrictions. Thank you, dear what? coach, for the good decision. I think that's a maybe a little bit lost in translation. Nonetheless, uh, it goes on to say... Oh, Lala, do you think that's because it's been translated into Finnish and back? Yes. <laughs> um, Lalas was born in Mystery... Alexi Lalas facts. He was born in Michigan, but his father is Greek. During his boyhood, Lalas lived in Greece. Lalas is quick-witted and he's become a favourite favorite player for the journalists who are eagerly waiting for the World Cup to start. For some reason, the US team directors tend to hide him away when the reporters show up with their recorders. Oh, we God. wonder why. So There we go. Was, was Lexi Lalas... Good or just like in terms of the US team, was he one of the better players? This is what I want to know, or was he just more visible because was, he was, was he not the, the character? Was he the captain? I don't think he was the captain, no. I don't think so. It would have said in that article, wouldn't it? Yeah. There is a, def- a there is a leadership quality about him that yeah. I can't quite place put my finger I on. I think he is proof that and I say this as someone and you can as well, who can play the guitar. I think if you don't make it professionally as a guitarist, it becomes sad. <laughs> like, well, on that, I, you decide whether or not Alexi Lalas made it as a guitarist when I tell you this next fact sent in by James Dunn. Alexi Lalas was in a short-lived post-grunge pre-strokes rock-based group with Marcello Salas, Thomas what? Callas, and Shirley Ballas called no, The Back no, Four. No, no, he wasn't. What, no, that's not band- true. They played a few corporate gigs on the no, weekend that's not of the true. 1999 Monaco Grand Prix. No, that's not true. What was Shirley Ballas? Someone's, someone's Shirley Ballas. Yeah, what from Strictly? Hang on, Chris. You, Who is Shirley? Uh, she's the head judge from Strictly Come Dancing. Because she had been. If I, if I, no, of course it. not. You've no, of course, <laughs> Chris. I'm so desperate. Of Alex, that is I'm so, so desperate for Alexi Ballas. Why would he? If I just Google image, yeah, there is there is absolutely no evidence. Of course, Shirley there's Ballas. not. <laughs> and all their surnames rhyme. Yeah, of course. Is anyone have read it out that I clocked that? Oh my god! So Who sent that in, uh, James Dunn. Think, Guys, if we cannot muddy make... the waters with fake Alexi Lalas facts, this is the worst feature we've ever done. <laughs> it comes from the fact that you started a few weeks ago with. Um, that he was in a band, which everyone knew. And now you're just peddling absolutely... What? So desperate for Lalas facts that I'm just throwing anything out there. So who did you think... Sorry, talk me through what you thought this was. A band with him, Marcelo Salas. Who's the second one? Thomas Callas and Shirley Ballas. I don't know who this was. I mean, this is mental that you've heard. Marcelo Salas, we all know. Who's Thomas Callas? Do you know what? I kind of bought Marcelo Salas because he's got long yeah. hair. He's from the same era. Yeah. You know, all right, that's not the most mad. And it's, it's unlikely. Yeah. But he, what well, are they it, called? This is the, the back four. This is the final nail in the coffin. Back Thomas four, Callas is on. actually, he's only 30 now, which would make him six years old at the 1999 Monaco Grand Prix. <laughs> I think that's the final Who nail in his coffin. Who is he? No, it's not. He's a footballer. The coffin was still unnailed. <laughs> a Czech footballer who's currently playing for Bristol City. 
Right. Okay. So throw that ignore throw that out. No, <laughs> we can... I mean we're leaving it in because, Yeah, of course. Because we're leaving it because it's last minute. We we're not leaving anything on the cutting room floor because I haven't got time to to listen to a new so sadly that's got to remain in. That's and Oh, have you got no. any more Alexa? I think yeah, I've got one dead. final Alexa. I think Alexa the feature's over. I think the feature's <laughs> no. already dead. The first week of Wait, it. well, let's see if this last fact pulls it back. Fortunately, Jake, who sent this in, has provided photographic evidence of this last oh, fact. Right. So, okay. so I, I, you know, unless this is Photoshop, I feel quite sleep, confident about it. You can sleep soundly. He sent in uh, what he considers to be one of the most astonishing pictures of Alexi Lalas, which is also one of the most bizarre photos of the 90s. Okay. Alexia Lalas is, is it him with Len Goodman? <laughs> it's a 90s picture of Lalas in a group shop with Iggy Pop, Courtney Love, and the Lemonheads. Oh, wow. The, wow. Yeah, we pulled it back. Have I just pulled well, it back? That is, that's the kind of photo you would expect to see of Alexi Lalas, if you know what I mean. <laughs> do, you know, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Because I can imagine he's him hanging out with those people. Yeah. So do you think he was a hellraiser? It's hard to be a hellraiser and a professional athlete. I'd say Courtney Love at that time, judging by the photo, was, you know, a hellraiser. Yeah. And obviously Iggy Pop. I don't know what the kind of score with Iggy Pop is over time, um, whether he cleaned up. But um, he's always yeah, maintained man. a six pack. Yeah, he has always looked very good, hasn't he, Iggy Pop? <laughs> yeah. He seems to tread that line of professional athlete and hellraiser quite well. Given Who's his physique. Yes. Yes, definitely. Is Iggy Pop sober? Yeah, he's long sober. So maybe, you know, maybe by that point. Yeah, he's, he's sorted himself out. Um, yeah. All right. Well, that's it for Alexa. Yeah, yeah Iggy Pop. Fact. Iggy Pop was. So maybe Iggy Pop's the kind of person you actually quite want to be hanging out with if you're a footballer because he's living quite a kind of... Um, yeah, yeah. It's better, better than, life. say, Wayne Lineker. <laughs> um. Well, that's it for Alexi Lalas facts. Look, I want to keep Forever? this feature going. Do no, I, well, I don't know. The listeners, the listeners will decide. At I'm least saying. we've got a, a hit rate of approximately sixty-six percent accuracy of our Alexi Lalas facts so far. So let's see yeah. if we can improve upon that. Okay, yeah. One of them was the enjoy sex, which I'd say isn't <laughs> that much of a fact. <laughs> um, should we have some correspondence? Yes. I'm Jim Rosenthal, and this is the Electronic Post Bag. You've got mail. Okay, we've had a great email here from Maurice Elliott, and uh, Josh, this is going to be particularly interesting for you. He says he has some niche knowledge that he's been carried around with him since he was employed at QPR as a teenager. He says he was uh, on the stewarding team as a runner, a role which generally meant doing dog's body jobs like ferrying keys around the ground, handing out stewards fluorescent jackets when they signed in, making sure emergency telephones were unlocked. But he was also stationed with another runner for a time in the photographer's room at Lofters Road. Oh. A nondescript, unmarked, windowless room tucked behind a hot dog and drink kiosk in the West Paddock on South Africa Road. Yeah. A short walk level with a pitch. The room was probably about three metres by three metres. A kitchen-style counter running around three walls in a U-shape. Magnolia-painted breeze blocks walls. And here... 
The photographers would congregate before the game. Some would bring their assistants who would set up a little station at the counter, usually consisting of a large drawstring bag made of heavy plasticky material with a tray inside and some chemicals. The snappers would ask us to come collect rolls of film pitch side at agreed times, which meant having to hop over the wall at the front of the paddock and run around wow, the edge of the pitch. Great the job. size of Loftus Road meant that this was easier said than done yeah, sometimes. Bring the rolls back to the assistant in the photographer room. They would unroll the film inside the bag as to not expose it, treat it with chemicals, and then use duct tape to stick strips of the treated film onto the wall, drying them off with a hairdryer. Wow. So they wouldn't be developing the photos there, but just fixing the film ready to be scanned later yeah. that evening. I, I, know how, I know how the developing process works. Don't worry about that. <laughs> I, I do. So I do. I did A-level photography, Chris. So I've I've developed many a film in my time um, in the so dark you, rooms. Your speculation that I thought was quite wild has turned out to be true. So a lot of these grounds had photographers' rooms. Was that my speculation? Was that not Michael's? I don't know. I think it was yours. It How was did mine. they get those photos ready? How did yeah. they get them to the papers wow, in time? They yeah, developed what? them in the round in the ground. Great. I I still find it incredibly impressive that also reporters used to phone through their reports. Yeah. Do you not find that impressive? Yeah, I know. And then, then I... stick to the word count and it's the, it's not done on a laptop. To be able yeah. to do that is an incredible skill, I think. It also makes me long. I, I wouldn't like to be a journalist now, but I'd, there's something romantic about being a journalist in maybe the 70s or the 80s, 60s even, yeah. phoning in your copy. Because yes. now it feels quite soulless and uploading. I don't think it, into it does. Management no, because you're not uploading. They're not uploading it themselves into content management because they would just be sending it. They'll just be emailing it to the sub, won't they? Do you think? Yeah, I don't think Barney yeah. Rona is is logging in because it has to be checked and stuff. Yeah, but they like yeah. he's not writing his own headlines and like you know, so it's he's sending it to someone who's uploading it. But I think um, I think there's still a thrill to the football match report because anything can happen. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's still the ultimate time-sensitive piece of journalism yeah. more than anything else, I'd say. So, yeah, it's, 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 it's thrilling, that, that kind of... I, I, oh, what do you think about the... Like, because obviously you get the you, you get the kind of report, but then you get the colour piece. You get the quotes piece, which I always think is the most boring thing and just shit isn't it the quotes when well, they, the they combined a lot read... these days aren't they yeah like they don't, the, you don't the get a separate quotes. quote piece too much you unless do, they say I something mean, yeah. really interesting yeah and then i like the color piece but the color piece is obviously made mainly based around assumptions at about the 60 minute mark do you know what i mean yeah i mean there's a lot of there's a lot of time sensitive skewing of articles isn't there in the football world i didn't quite have that no, I think Frank Skinner talked about this, the pink paper, which came out at half time. You know, it would come out in the evening, but only report the the scores yeah. up until half time. Yeah, that's that, I mean, mad, that is isn't mad, it? isn't it? Yeah. And that is it's just such a different well, the, world. The, the evening paper feels such an anachronism now, doesn't it? I suppose I suppose the standard is still an evening paper, isn't it? Any um, any form of paper-based medium these days. It's just a it's yeah, you do, people are just buying it just because of the nostalgia almost. I mean, I do it. No, I don't even know I why. Like, I, like a, I like a Sunday paper. Yeah, the text. I like a Sunday paper. What about on a train? Do you like a paper on a yes, train? Yes, exactly. Yeah. I think I think what I'm trying to do is imagine I'm still in that world of old reporters phoning in copy. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying yeah, to relive exactly. those days. Yeah, exactly. 
I could um, easily get it on my phone, but I just like. Yeah, but it's not. There's, there's reading on your phone isn't the same experience, is it? It's just not. Yeah, it's just not. I'm sorry. Um, I, I refuse to accept it. Well, that's enough discussion of uh, journalism. We're now joined by Michael Marden. Hello, Michael. Hello. You just missed. I, I'm looking forward to you look, looking back. Skull attempted a new feature, which was an Lexi Lalas fact. And one of the first was a fact someone had made up that he believed. They got past oh, my wow. filter got and made it onto the filter. Um, you say uh, filter. Um, yeah. <laughs> what, what is your filter? Tell, tell Michael for the listeners, because I think the listeners will want to revisit that this past your... <laughs> This a, a listener called James Dunn sent in an email that Alexi Lalas was in a short-lived post-grunge pre-strokes rock ba- rock based group with Marcello Salas, Thomas Callas, and Shirley Ballas called the Back Four. They played a few corporate gigs at the weekend of the 1999 Monaco Grand Prix. Now I know who Marcello Salas is. Thomas Callas I'm fairly aware of, but have obviously overlooked the fact he's 30 and still playing, which would make him six at the 1999 Monaco Grand Prix. <laughs> I didn't know Shirley Ballas. But as Josh pointed out, she's a judge and strictly. And, and also, just to it was be only clear, reading Shirley Ballas is the biggest name there. She's the only one you didn't know. And I'd say Shirley Ballas is the one that's the biggest cultural figure <laughs> these days. How did you not know who Shirley Ballas is? I don't know. I, haven't, I don't watch Strictly, despite having so, worked on it. So did you Did you not, the, the moment you read those out loud and the rhythm of the, the rock <laughs> idea yeah. surnames. So, I would say that was read, the first you, moment I had concern. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is amazing. But when I when I when I pulled the email, I was like, well, to be honest, I was desperate for Alexi Lalas facts because I really wanted this feature to work. <laughs> Another one was he likes sex, Michael. So it's really it's good stuff. It's good stuff. Uh, but you can enjoy that. Should we have one more piece of correspondence? Yeah, come on then. So um an email from Mark Hindmarsh. Well, actually, I've got you can pick. I'll let you, you have decide. the one that's true, please. Okay, you can have Someone who got information on Soccer AM's Beat the Keeper, which we talk about. You could also pick from alternative books to Jim Smith's time at Derby with the book Groundwork, some other managerial (laughs) periods that might be of of interest. Or you can have more information about Steve Sutton's conducting. What are you picking? I I like the Jim Smith one myself. Okay. All right, here we go. They're all good, though. They're all attempting, and I look forward to the next episode now. (laughs) Thank you to Sam King. He says, I've just finished listening to the latest correspondence special and especially enjoyed the chat about the book on Jim Smith's time as Derby County Manager. Groundwork. It got me thinking about other possible books about other managerial spells from the 90s and which would be the most boring. In the end, I came up with a book about Tony Park's six spells as caretaker manager of Blackburn Rovers. It could be called (laughs) Park's Life. Yeah, nice. Or maybe a book about Christian Gross's time as Tottenham manager, focusing specifically on the goalish draws he achieved while there. It could be called Gross Point Blank. Really I'd good. definitely not read that. Keep up the good work, Sam. I think Tony Parks six times as manager of Blackburn is, is insane, isn't it? Six games. I would 100% read that. That would be fascinating. Imagine the change. Imagine the things that he's seen. This is a sort of quiet observer in the background. Tony Parks, who looks... Oh, God, I can just... He looks exactly like I remember him. Yeah, six times. And then, get this. So this is his managerial career. Don't look it up, because it's... Uh, okay. 86 to 87, Blackburn caretaker manager. 1991, Blackburn caretaker manager. 96 to 97, Blackburn caretaker manager. 98, Blackburn caretaker manager. 
99 to 2000, Blackburn caretaker manager. 2004, Blackburn caretaker manager. Four years later, his final role, caretaker manager at Blackpool. Isn't that <laughs> astonishing? <laughs> Do you think each time he's gone into the chairman and sort of gone, hey, hey, boss, I'm, I'm ready. Now, now yeah, I wonder, yeah. And then increasingly the chairman's like, oh, fucking hell, he comes Warner again. <laughs> Or the other way is that he's been offered the job six times and he's like, no, I don't want to do it. I want Don Mackay. To, or, to become or, caretaker manager six times surely implies you're doing a good job as caretaker, aren't you? What's he going back to? Do you think it was, I remember, um, was, you know, Sir Trevor Brooking was caretaker manager for West Ham and he did really good and there was a bit of a clamour. Did you say him. Sir Trevor Brooking or did you say yeah, so? you didn't get knighthood for, knighthood for nothing, mate. I, I can't believe you. You've, you've, you absolute... I don't Company think you're man. saying that if he doesn't, if he's not West Ham associated, you're not doing yeah. that, sir, there. You yeah. absolute fucking bootlicker. He's a new guy the realm. Anyway, there was a clap when in, um, he had a really good run in 2003. We ended up relegated, but t- so Trevor Brooking did a great job as caretaker and there was a clamour for him to be manager, but he said he didn't want to do it because it would spoil his reputation. You know, if it went yeah. badly, which man- like, you know, most managers respond in tears. He yeah. didn't want that for himself. And I wonder yeah. whether there's a bit of that about the non-knighted Tony Parks. Yes. Yeah, I wonder. Absolutely fascinating career. Yeah. He also only played for Blackburn. If he hadn't soiled himself with that Blackburn, <laughs> with that Blackpool. <laughs> and destroyed his CV with that stint in Blackpool. Too, yeah, he'd destroyed. have just been the ultimate one-club man. Oh, is he still a alive? Seven care- yes, a manager, yeah. a manager with seven. All he's got on his CV is seven caretaker spells. That is astonishing. Can you uh, beat that? Has anyone done more caretaking? This is how to get in touch. Get in touch with the show. Email hello at quicklykevin.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at quicklykevin, and sign up to the mailing list at quicklykevin.com. So before Mark Watson, if you want even more Quickly Kevin content, two bonus episodes every month, all the episodes nice and early, plus all the Steve Bruce books, all that good stuff, you can get it on the Quickly Kevin fan club to sign up. Go to anotherslice.com forward slash Quickly Kevin. All the extra content is on there. You can go back through hundreds of hours of extra episodes recorded exclusively for the fan club. To sign up, head over to anotherslice.com forward slash Quickly Kevin. And up next now, I tell you what, Tony Pulis, what a man. Another guest where in his kind of playing career or his managerial career, really, I was like, oh, I just don't think I really like Tony Pulis. And then we've met him and my God, what a man. A classic. You can just tell why players love playing for him so much. What a man. Here he is, Tony Pulis. Our guest this week in his baseball cap and tracksuit is one of the most iconic football managers of the 90s and beyond, known for transforming the fortunes of a whole host of teams. We're delighted to welcome to Quickly Kevin, Tony Pulis. Welcome, Tony. Morning, boys. Uh, I was just thinking, you've clocked up so many different clubs. I wondered, when people say to you, who do you support? What do you say? I know you've got some pictures on the wall behind you, but who's your team? Who's my team? When I was younger, I was from Newport, obviously. I'd go over and watch the county if I could, but mostly we were playing on Saturdays then. And if I got a chance, I'd go to Cardiff. And Toshak was playing for Cardiff at the time. Jimmy Schooler was manager. 
And they had come very, very close on a couple of occasions of actually getting, they were a second division team at the time, of getting in the first, what was the old first division. So I'd travelled down there, a little gang of us had jumped on a train with no money. The next stop was Cardiff. So the conductor had come round and asked for our tickets. And we'd say, no, we haven't got any. So he'd kick us off. But like I say, the next stop was Cardiff anyway. So we were quite happy to be kicked off the train. <laughs> what was the ground like at that time? What, Ninian Park? Yeah. Old. <laughs> like I said, we used to take, I don't know how much dad had give me or whatever, but we used to take enough to, to try and get in. And that was it. So if we could nick in, Josh, we'd nick in. There was old tarpaulin at the back of the Grange end then. We'd walk nice. around through all the stingies, jump over a little stream and get up and try and get in. I know I shouldn't be saying this, but... That's what <laughs> no, we, I don't we think they're going to bill you now for it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then if we did it, if we managed it, we had enough money to buy a burger or a hot dog. Amazing. So that would be most probably Toshak. And I was only young then watching Toshak. My dad actually took me to a game where Cardiff played Real Madrid in one of the European competitions. And that was a fantastic experience as well. Who was in the Real Madrid team at that point? Oh, goodness knows. I was little. I can remember Dad taking us. We got there really early, opened the gates up, and he took us right down to the front and sat us almost on the wall to watch the the game. Fantastic oh, times. That was that kind of weird period where, well, not weird period, it was length of decades, where Welsh teams would be in the lower divisions of the English league, but they'd win the Welsh Cup and then suddenly they'd be playing in the European competition. Yeah, 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 yeah. that's true. But they stopped recognising the Welsh League for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) How dare they? Yeah, yeah. we love yeah. talking to footballers who have something a bit odd on their CV. And one thing that sticks out for you, Tony, is of course finishing second in the 1982 Hong Kong First Division with Happy Valley. How on earth do you end up in Hong Kong in the early 80s playing for Happy Valley? <laughs> I got a phone call actually from um, Ron Wiley, who had played at Aston Villa, managed Aston mm. Villa. He was a wonderful man, and uh, I'd been caught in Debbie for about five years, and. We didn't really have enough money to get married and we didn't really have enough money to put a deposit down on our house. And the offer I had to go to Hong Kong for a year enabled us really to get enough money to put a deposit on our house or to pay off a friend who would lend us, who would have lent us some money for the house and to have enough money to get married as well. So I spent eight months out there, really struggled at the beginning. I found it very, very difficult culturally. But as the time went on, I played for Happy Valley, which was one of the big clubs there. We always Mm. played in that stadium or on that ground. But as it went on, Deb's come out at Christmas, had six weeks for me, and she enjoyed it as well. And she said, if you want to stay, there's absolutely no problems with me. But I had a chance of going back to Bristol Rovers with Bobby Gould. So came back, got married, and the rest of my life has been spent in English football. What was Bobby Gould like as a manager? I played golf with Bob the other week. He's 76, Bob, and he's as fit as a flea. He's got everything that he had before in the right places, mentally. (laughs) I'll tell you a quick story. Bobby was playing at West Ham in the early 70s, and I just left South Wales, became an apprentice at Bristol Rovers. And I used to clean his boots. He used to come in on a Friday and train it because he lived in Bristol and then travelled to London to play. And on a Friday... He would come in and train with uh, Don Megson, was manager at the time. Unfortunately, we've just lost Don. 
So Don would allow Bob to train. He'd come in. And for me cleaning his boots, he gave me a brand new pair of boots. He turned up one day. He never paid for them. They were sponsored and he gave them to me. And that our relationship from that time onwards, I then played with Bob at Bristol Rovers. I then was a player under Bobby when he managed. And I'd also started helping out with the coaching of the kids at a very young age. So, yeah, he's always been there or thereabouts, Bob. And I've had his son, Jonathan, involved oh, yeah. in my coaching setups at clubs I've been at. Richard, his eldest son, is a smashing fella. He's now chairman of the ECB, so English oh, wow. Cricket Board. Wow. So Bob's not only was a great sportsman himself, but actually has yeah. produced two boys who are deeply involved in sport now. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. If you're busy like me and you're trying to catch your kids' games, it's important to have somewhere where you can go to find a good hotel. We're all over the place. Sometimes you know, we're in Florida, we'll be in New York. You want to take the wife on a quick vacation and get away? Whether you're looking for a relaxing getaway or heading out of town to see the playoffs, Hotels.com app has a perfect hotel for every trip. Compare up to five hotels side by side so you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings without having to switch back and forth between options. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. Your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath then a two-hour nap. Because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane back to reality. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your travel experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Bobby Gould, obviously, his son Jonathan was a, goalkeeper you're yeah. a defender a lot of defenders become managers it feels like less strikers become managers do you think there's anything in it I'm not sure I think if there was something that springs to mind is that as defenders you were playing defender or you were a defender because you weren't good enough technically to play up front or to play wide yeah, yeah. so you had to think about the game more Josh so yeah most probably uh that might be one of the reasons whether it's the main reason I'm not sure well, there's one of those things where people say often, like, the most talented players in the world, I mean no disrespect, Tony, you know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> they struggle to be managers because they can't comprehend struggling to do something. Do you know what I mean? They can't comprehend what it's like not to be blessed with the talent of a Maradona or a Hoddle or whatever. I've played with some really, really good players and managed some really good players. And I've actually had conversations with managers who've managed at the highest level and dealt with the top players. And they say the same, you know, that they are just gifted. It's just natural for these players to go out and perform. And I spoke to Pep the one day after a game and we were talking about Messi and the great team he had at Barcelona. And he said to me, how can I tell Messi what to do? How can I guide someone who's just a complete and utter genius? It's just impossible. So yeah. you facilitate the great players rather yeah. than direct them. When you were playing in your playing days, obviously Bristol Rovers was 
your first club, Ian Holloway came through the ranks with you at Bristol Rovers. Was he like we imagine Ian Holloway? Is I suppose the first question. The second question is, could you imagine him and you becoming two legendary managers together? The first time I came across Ian was when he was about 14 years of age. And we used to walk across from Eastville. We used to change at Eastville at the stadium, walk across to the park, Eastville Park. And the park yeah. was on a slope. We used to train on a slope. we take poles over there and use them as sticks for goals. When you look back, it's ridiculous, really, what professional teams were doing and how they were training. What was the grass like in the park? Is it playable? Well, we just waited for the parkies to cut the grass for us. And if they didn't cut the grass, we were playing (laughs) on long grass. Josh, that was just everybody. That's not Bristol Rovers. Going back to Ian, he was a 14-year-old lad, a little skinny little runt who really and truthfully could hardly put his kit on. There was nothing of him. But he had a, a personality that shone out. And eventually, I ended up playing with Ian. He's actually godfather to my son, Anthony. Oh, wow. And we've remained, you know, good friends for most of our lives. Did he have the same personality then? Was he the same character, even at 14? Oh, he, he always had something about him. He, he was <laughs> always up to something. He was always a little bit off the wall. He's most probably got worse as he's got older. But the thing is, he's such a lovely guy. Yeah, He's such a lovely person. And he's had such a tough, tough life in respect of his children as well. The girls it's so are, inspiring that he learned sign language. Honestly, Josh, it, the stuff that Ian has gone through in his private life, never mind football, he's a remarkable person, a remarkable character. Yeah, it's amazing. And then you spent the tail end of your career with Bournemouth, Harry Redknapp. Yep. So when you're playing under Harry Redknapp, how inspiring is he as a character? And what was that well, like? Well, obviously, we got promoted the first year I was at Bournemouth, so we, we ended up winning the league with 97 points. Harry was a very good coach. When I first mm. came to the football club, he'd been brought up at West Ham with Ron Wiley and John Wiley and Ron Greenwood. And his coaching sessions were absolutely fantastic. He had, obviously, a great sense of humour, which he's still got today. And he was quick. He always had the enthusiasm to inspire people, but he knew the game, Josh. You know, but people, as Harry's grown into blinking, going away on, on that thing on the TV and all that stuff, they, yeah. you know, they remember him for that. He's had a wonderful footballing career. Yeah. He was a good player. I thought he was a really good coach when I went to Bournemouth. I think he moved away from it a little bit as he got older and then just managed, which he is fantastic with. Yeah. Sometimes I go out with him, I'm really jealous of his memory and his ability to remember people's names. I used to have Dave Kemp come with me for away games, and I used to say to Kemp, the only reason you're coming, when we walk in the door into the coach's room, he could remember the names I couldn't remember. And I go to (laughs) Kemp, who's that in the corner? Who's that over there? Within five minutes, I knew who they were. So if I had to go over and speak to them or they come over, I'd get their names. Harry, his memory was absolutely fantastic. But no... He doesn't live far from where I am. We play golf now and then. Obviously, he's king of the jungle, so everybody remembers him for that (laughs) instead of his football, which is a shame, really. You also would have crossed paths with a young Jamie Redknapp down at Bournemouth. Did you at first think it was a bit of nepotism or were you like, this guy's actually really good? Well, Harry had his son Mark as well at the football club at Bournemouth, the older boy. Hmm. Mark was a little bit like me. He was a bit of a ham and egg. He was just a straight-up-and-down player who was... 
technically not that gifted, but gave everything and was a real trier. I Jamie like that was, phrase, ham and egg. Yeah, I've not yeah, heard that uh, before. Yeah, that yeah. Very, very basic, Josh. <laughs> but Jamie was a little bit special, even at 14, 15 years of age. He used to come in and train with us, and he technically looked such a good player. Obviously, he had great physique as well for a footballer. And it was no surprise to anybody at the club when he broke into the team at 17, I think, and then went on to be signed by Liverpool and have such a wonderful career. How good looking was he in those days? Did you think this guy's <laughs> going to be on? He's not a ham and Edgar, is he? <laughs> He's is not it? a ham no. and Edgar. No. Yeah. To be honest, Josh, I wasn't looking at boys. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> when, I, when I was that age. <laughs> Glad we could clear that up. <laughs> um, well, what was interesting about, you kind of forget, we've spoken to a few people who played the lower leagues and you kind of forget that it's not necessarily the case that football is going to be the career for the rest of your life. And I know that you yourself, you looked at a small business qualification, didn't you, around that time? And I wondered, what would Tony Pulis be doing now? Yeah. Well, I couldn't have worked indoors. Being here, sat here now for over an hour, talking to two wonderful people, obviously. <laughs> I couldn't sit in this office for more than 30 minutes. I'd have to get out and get some fresh air or do something. Luckily, we're very, very close to the beach. We go out for walks yeah. every day. If I'm not out walking, then I'm off doing something else, but it'll be outside the house. I've got a lovely garden. I spend a lot of time in the garden now. So I can't sit still in a house. I'm not one of them. At night, if there's yeah. football on or if there's something I want to watch, yes, I can have a nice cup of green tea and Debs will bring us in a biscuit and I can sit there and relax. But during the day, when it's beautiful like there is now, then to be sat indoors is almost a mortal sin for me. So did you love being on the training pitch? Was that like the place? Listen, I was blessed to be brought up in a wonderful area down the docks in South Wales, where mm. it was all really, really old school community. Everybody pulled together. My dad worked in the steelworks. We were two streets away from the dock gates. So we were brought up with nothing. There was eight of mm. us living in a three-bedroom terraced house. Oh, wow. We were brought up with nothing, but we had everything. And yeah. I thought it was the greatest place in the world. It was only when, obviously, I was lucky enough to go to Bristol Rovers that I actually seen outside of South Wales. I'd never been yeah. anywhere. My brothers and sister, or one of my sisters, they still live down there. So I was fortunate to be given this opportunity. And I think I've said before, I sat on the train on my first journey to Bristol for my first day as an apprentice, and I promised myself, that I would give absolutely everything to this career. It was something that I'd yeah. always dreamed of doing. It was something that I was blessed to be given the opportunity to do. And from that moment onwards, playing, I was always interested in asking people about things. I never accepted anything unless I questioned it. Mm. I always believed my eyes. So I wanted to find out myself. I'm one of them that People talk about things and say things and do things. This player is this, that player. I always wanted to see it with my own eyes to believe it. And a little bit of a doubt in Thomas, really, in some respects. But <laughs> let's not go into religion. But it became one of my strongest traits that I always wanted to do what I wanted to do, irrespective of what it took yeah. to get there. Wow. And so what point did you think, I'd love to be a manager? I used to go on coaching courses. I passed all my coaching badges. Dave Burnside, who was down at Bristol at the time and was a wonderful fella working for the Gloucester FA. Dave 
took me on my prelim and intermediate badge and then recommended me to do my full badge. And at 21 years of age, I'd had a bad injury at Bristol. I was out for seven, eight months. I then went to take my full badge, which was a two-week course at the time, mainly to get fit for the coming season because I'd missed almost the full season. And you're around people with such great experience at 21 years of age, Josh, that you sit there and just listen to them. And that's what I did. I sat and listened and learned a lot. And then from that point onwards, and this is what this country was, football-wise, was really, I thought, was exceptional. Every year at the end of the season, they'd have a week at Lily Show with top yeah. coaches putting sessions on. Mm. Not only coaches in England, but also coaches abroad. And from the age of about 24, 25 years of age, every year, what I do, myself and a lad called Dave Williams, who was a really good player, coach, and managed as well, we would sign up and get on that course as soon mm. as that window opened to get on there. And we'd go there, and we'd watch Don Howe, Dave Sexton, Venables, Cartwright, all the top coaches, Bobby Robson. Yeah. I'm 24, 25, 26 years of age, and I'm watching yeah. these people work and coach. It was such an influence, just great football people at yeah. that time. You could sit around and talk, and we'd have a few beers in the evening, and I'd be a young, young kid sat in the corner with all these experienced coaches or managers and just picking up bits and pieces here and bits and pieces there. And I think that set my mind on fire, really, in respect of wanting to be not just a footballer, but a coach yeah. as well. You, you became a coach at Bournemouth. Are you kind of in Harry's ear going, I'd love to do a bit of coaching, or does he spot something in you? How does it work? It's a great story. Ancient changed, I think he'd had a year at Bournemouth. They'd finished fourth or fifth from bottom. And there was about six or seven players at the contract. He got rid of those six or seven. It might even have been more than that. And he brought myself in, Richard Cook, Trevor Aylott, Mark O'Connor, Carl Richards, Jerry Payton came in. He made a host of signs, John Williams. I think John came in just after the season had started. We'd play games. We'd won more than we lost, thank God. But I would sit down and I'd talk to Harry about certain things and discuss the certain things with him. And he would sometimes come to me and say, what do you think about this? I was fascinated. At that time, Josh, Italian yeah. football was the main thing. Yeah. That was the league. All the money was in Italy. They were showing Sunday games, Italian games. So everything was, my mind was on Italian football. And I think, the way the Italians set themselves up defensively more than anything. And yeah. now you've got an era where everybody wants to play football from the back because of Pep. Pep set yeah. that tone. When I was starting, I think there was a lot of it was to do with what the Italians were doing. They're great teams, AC Milan and Juventus and those sort of teams. I'd sit and watch them. So we would talk and discuss different things. And I'll tell you a story. We, we had to play Swindon at the back end of the season. Lou McCarry was manager at Swindon at the time. They had Jimmy Quinn playing up front with Steve White and Bamba, big Bamba as well. So we played on Tuesday night and won a game somewhere. And Swindon were playing on a Wednesday. Three of us or four of us jumped in a car on the Wednesday without anybody knowing, went up yeah. and watched a Swindon game. Yeah. And then the next day, Harry found out that we were at the game. So he took like, come over, da, da, da. And I said, no, we just wanted to watch the game. And I think H was so impressed. You've got these young players prepared to go by themselves to go and watch yeah. games as well. And how much enthusiasm you have, just not 
for your own yeah. benefit, but for the team and for football itself. So we built up a little bit of a rapport, I think, that way. Yeah. And then when you become manager, what's the first day as a manager? Like, do you remember turning up and going, shit, I'm in charge of this? <laughs> or did you not? Were you like, yes, well, I'm in charge of this? Harry had decided to leave the club. Then went up and went to work with Billy at West Ham. Yeah. And the chairman offered me the job. And he offered me the job because I was cheap. I think Harry had, had said, if you're looking for a cheap option, Tony's never managed, but he's been a good help for me. Yeah. So it's worth taking a chance. I'd learned a lot from H. And one of the biggest things I'd learned was the fact that he would go and watch games. He always believed that knowing the material that you needed to be successful was players and good players. And then, Josh, we never had videos. You watch Match of the Day maybe on a Saturday night, but that would be all top league. You never watch the lower leagues. You never see lower league football. So I'll give you a week when I became coach. Harry rang me up the one day and said, let's do an earlier session because I want to go and watch Millwall Reserves on a Monday. So we played on the Saturday, came in on the Monday, did a little bit of training, got changed, jumped in his car, drove across to Millwall. They were playing in a football combination. Watched yeah. the game, two o'clock kickoff. The game finished. We drove across London to Chelsea. Their kickoff was seven o'clock. We then watched Chelsea reserves play in the combination. Then we drove back down to Bournemouth, trained on the Tuesday. There was a game in the Midlands and there was a game, I think, down, might even have been Exeter or Plymouth on the Tuesday yeah. night. Harry would go off one way, Stuart Morgan, all the coaching staff would Blimey. go to games. And then you'd come back, you'd have the Wednesday off and then Thursday or Wednesday off, I'm saying, if there was a game Harry wanted you to watch or you picked and you thought was... So what I was doing, which I didn't realise at the time, I was actually experiencing what was really a very, very important part of management yeah. at that period. And that was watching games. How often do you see a player in those games and you're like, I'm so glad I came to Plymouth because there's... Yeah, I was so enthusiastic in those days and young and obviously wanted to learn as much as I possibly could. You'd go to games and you'd pick one or two players out. You wouldn't pick yeah. everybody out, but you'd pick one yeah. or two players out. You make a note, you put it down, you keep that note. So Ari had definitely left an impression on, on recruitment. And like I say, going back to that week, we most probably go out on a Wednesday. If we played up north on a Saturday and Tramia Rovers used to play Friday nights, I don't know if you're old yeah, enough yeah. to remember that. John Aldridge was manager then and they were... I think, in the championship or whatever. But we'd always go across then to Tramia. And that was a Friday night. And then drive back to the hotel late, get up, play the game the next day, and then travel back down to Bournemouth. So, But that was normal. It wasn't just yeah. me doing it. That was, yeah. you'd get in the ground, and there'd be 10, 12, 14 people there from other clubs doing exactly the same as what And are you all doing. having a laugh together? Or are you like, oh, God. Yeah, you, 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 would, you would, yeah. <laughs> there was a pause to a, there. To a point. To a point, John, because if there was a good player that you fancied, the last thing you wanted to do was let everybody else know that you fancied them. So there was there was, there was always a bit of cat and mouse going yeah. on with what we were doing, what we weren't doing. But it taught me a very, very important lesson. Well, spotting bargains is when you look at these early years of your careers, you're almost famous for it, really. You, at Bournemouth, you spent £400,000 and recouped £2.7 million in player sales. And if you have a look at what you yeah. go on to do at Gillingham, so much of that is built on just finding unbelievable players at like bargain basement prices. I mean, have you always been good at spotting a player? Is that a result of just watching all these games? How are you doing Well, that? what I did as well from an early age, and again, I don't know whether this was just me thinking out of the box, we couldn't afford anything 
in the first division at the time or the Premier League at the time or the second division or the third division. So I, what I did, I would ring a friend up, a manager or a coach who was in the lower leagues. And I'd ring them up every couple of months and just ask them about the games they'd played and that they'd seen anybody, that they fancied anybody. And this happened with Joe Parkinson. Joe was at Wigan and had had a bad injury at the end of the season. And Dave Philpotts was manager of Wigan. I'd rung Dave up. We played Wigan last game of the season. I'd rung Dave up and then took Dave out um, in Bournemouth and we had a cup of tea together. And I was asking him about players that he'd seen, that he fancied and this, that and the other. And he said to me, he said, Tom, listen, we've got a, a real, real good player. And the club don't realise how good he is, Joe Parkinson. He said, he's out of contract. And if you went to a tribunal, you'd nick him for next to nothing. So I didn't say nothing. Then rung my chairman up, Norman Hayward, just a wonderful fellow. He's still a great friend to this day. I told Norman the story. So anyway, we went and spoke to Joe. Joe came down. Luckily, just got married, had a little baby. Took him down on the beach. It was a glorious day. Took Joe away from his wife, bought his little one an ice cream. By the time we'd come back and sat down with his wife, his wife was absolutely bold. You know, you come from Wigan and then you're going down to Bournemouth on the beaches. <laughs> it's just a different world. She was absolutely bowled over. She thought the place was wonderful. Never took them to the ground, mind. That at the time was a dump. So kept her away from the football side of it. But she was sold. I didn't have to talk to Joe. So we agreed yeah. to do the deal, signed him. Then we had to go to tribunal. And the lucky thing was Dave Philpotts, who knew the real value of Joe, had just got the sack. So we went in there with a manager who'd never worked with him. So I had enough ammunition to go in there and prove to the panel that by not offering Joe a new contract until really, really last minute, they really didn't think much of him. And I'll never forget, we got him for £20,000. And I'll never forget, we're walking down the stairs at Walsall. Walsall's new ground had just been built. We're walking down the steps out of the room and my chairman turned to me and went, £20,000? He went, I hope he's a good player. And within, what was it, eight months, nine months, we sold him to Everton for £800,000. Wow. So, I was a great lad, Joe. Yeah. Unfortunately, he was unlucky with injuries at Everton, but he was a wonderful lad. One of the other decisions you have to make when you become a manager is what you're going to wear on the touchline. And yeah. you've got what would be I'll described... I'll fashion. You have a look at You're that. an iconic look. <laughs> you're an iconic look. They talk about Klopp. He's followed me. He's followed me. <laughs> did you think it through that? Why the baseball cap? Like, what was the idea there? And did it well, just we'd, we'd, Yeah, the first year at Gillingham, my first season at Gillingham, we'd won promotion and I'd wore a cap at the end of the season, I think. Mm. And it just became very superstitious for me. No, oh, it was yeah. a superstition. And then that was the start of it. Debbie will always say it was because I was losing my hair. And I didn't want people to, <laughs> to see the back of my head. It started off as superstition. Wow. I just stayed with it. I just stayed with it. Do you know what I always thought about the baseball cap? It's something about you wearing a baseball cap that was quite intimidating. And I thought you as a manager, you seemed so strict and disciplinarian-like. We saw there's a documentary, which we'll talk about, that followed you in your days at Gillingham. And in that documentary, you see actually you're having a laugh and a joke with the players. There's a lot of warmth there. And I wonder, what was your kind of management philosophy? I was balanced in lots yeah. of ways, but there were certain principles that I always thought should be adhered to and you should be very strict on keeping. And I think after a while, the players, most of the players bought into 
to what I wanted and what I didn't want. And within those rules, they could have their fun. They could have, we're talking about the 90s and there was a different culture then than what it is today. So there was more room for the lads to enjoy themselves. There was more room for them to collectively get together and generate that spirit and that commitment that football in England was really famed for at that time. So summer of 95, Chilling him almost out of existence, really. Paul Scally buys yeah. the club for a nominal fee, two million pounds worth of debt, and he brings you in. One of the interesting things, like the first few weeks in charge of Chilling him, is that Chelsea come for a pre-season game. It's where we see Rude Hullet and Mark Hughes make their debuts in a Chelsea shirt. Given where you've come from, must be exciting. You know, you're managing a team against Rude Hullet all of a sudden. I think Chelsea had signed a couple of foreign players, and they needed a game quickly. And Gwyn Williams, I knew Gwyn really well, and Gwyn mm. was. Helping out, at, well, helping out. I think he was one of the main men there with with a setup. And he rang me up and said, how do you fancy a game at your place? We can't play at our place, but at your place. So I said, yeah, it'd be brilliant. We had, I think, Scully got about 16,000 people into Priestfield <laughs> that night. <laughs> I couldn't breathe, never mind move. <laughs> it really set the season off. But that was, I'd been out of work for a year. I don't know if you've looked yeah, at that, yeah. Chris, but I'd been out of work for a year, Josh. And... Yeah. Bruce Rioch had rung me. He was manager at Bolton. And yeah. Bruce had said to me, listen, I need someone down south to get around and watch games and look at things. And it was like, brilliant. I'll do it, Bruce. I'll do whatever yeah. you want me to do. I'll go to any game. Don't worry about it. And that's, I had that year of putting together a list of players that I'd watched. So when I took over at Priestfield, they'd finished 91st, I think, Chris, was it? Yeah. In the league, and yeah, I think yeah. they just they one spot from falling out of the league. The lucky thing was there was about 14, 15 players out of contract. So Paul had taken over from Tony Smith, bless him, who we've just lost to. It was one of the nicest people I've ever, ever met. And Tony had set the finances at the football club up to benefit, really, the club pushing forward without him taking any credit at all. Mm. And that was what Tony was like. But going back to the players, we'd lost... 14 players or whatever it was. So I gave Scully a list and we went to his house during that summer and we would invite the players who were free transfers to come and have interviews. So I knew the players I wanted. I knew the players I thought would be successful. I knew what I wanted to do, how I wanted to do it. I knew how tough the league was. I knew then it was very, very physical. It was all about power and strength and and everything else. So you had to balance off that little bit of quality with a lot of power and strength. And you had to have nine players, at least on the pitch, that you could bet your lives on week in, week out to turn up. And we sat there and we actually picked our way through players that the club could afford for the budget that they had. And we brought some fantastic characters in, which is a massive part of my selection programme. How do you judge that that character thing? Like, because obviously you've seen them play. Yeah, I'd ring everybody up, Josh. I'd ring if I could get through to their mothers and their aunties and their (laughs) uncles and their brothers and their cousins. (laughs) I would, or I'd get someone to do it for me. And in those days, Josh, obviously there was a drinking culture in there. Life was a little bit looser than what it is today. So you accepted certain things that players would get up to. The big thing for me was putting a group of players together who would work together, would gel together, and who would turn up every week mm. and put a performance in. Yeah. And we managed to put a structure together and, or an identity of what we needed and what we wanted. And we're very lucky, lucky to get what we needed. Can I just ask about Leo Fortune West? What a signing. £5,000. <laughs> now, the rumour is 
That money was raised by the supporters in a collection. Yeah, I think the supporters bought Leo. Leo, listen, I've got a couple of great stories about Leo. So he came in, he, Chris, you know, six foot eight, yeah. you know, <laughs> very massive. quiet, talking man, a gentleman. You know, yeah. you're looking at this giant of a man and all of a sudden this little squeaky voice comes out and you think, <laughs> what have I bought? Yeah, you know. <laughs> Is this the big dominant centre forward I need? So anyway, we turn up, we start pre-season and I always say to him, the, the work you put in now, if you really, really put it in, then you'll get the benefit during the season because the season's so hard. But we need to do this so we don't get muscular injuries, we don't get injuries. I've got a small, tight-knit squad. I don't want injuries. And to do what we do and the way I do my pre-season, we'll be strong enough to get through it. Mm. So the one day we have a really, really tough morning and it's tipping down with rain and it, getting the players changed into other kit was difficult. They only had one set of kit and they used to throw it in the middle of the dressing room and people used to come and pick it up and wash it <laughs> and then bring it back the next day and if you nice. got in there, you pick the best shorts That's and the, the best socks and the best top. So anyway, so I said to, to Lisa It's amazing Bass, that you went from that to talking to Pep Guardiola about how to manage that. crazy Josh, career. Let me get there. Let me get there. So anyway, <laughs> we decide we'll take them down to Lido. In the afternoon, we'll have a swim. So we set our teams out, me and Linz. I think we had 20 players. So we had four groups of five or five groups of four or whatever it is. So we get down to Lido and the lanes are all sorted out. So as we're walking down, Leo comes and taps me on the shoulder. He says, Gaffer, he says, I can't swim. So I've gone, oh, Leo, do me a favour. I'm thinking because it's raining, it's a bit cold, and you'll be all right, mate. Don't worry about it. You'll get through it. So he says, yeah, but I can't swim. So I said, Leo, just get on with it. So I walked down. I just think he's kidding, Josh. So as we're walking, he goes, he's telling the other players, he's, I can't swim. So by the time we get there, we get the teams. All the teams are sorted out. Freestyle up and back. Losing team up, you get 20 press-ups. Normal stuff. Yeah. Anyway, about fourth to dive off for the one team is Leo. <laughs> he dives in, Josh, and he belly flops, right? <laughs> You've got this giant of a lad just belly flops into the water and he doesn't come up. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't come up. So I'm thinking, oh, my God. Now, luckily, two or three of the players have gone in and pulled him out, sat him on the side, Got him sensible. So he looks up and he went, I did tell you. Swim. <laughs> but Josh, honestly, the credence that he got for oh. doing that from yeah. the rest of the group. And he'd only just joined us. Yeah. And he was from non-league. And we had experienced players who'd played at the higher level. Honestly, the credence he got for that Amazing. was absolutely yeah. fantastic. That's incredible. Yeah. How could you doubt the, his commitment after that? Well, yeah. the other little story, just I could tell you yeah. stories about them all, but the other little story about Leo, we used to, on a Friday, we used to always have fun and games before mm. we did our shape and our pattern and what we were trying to do, both in possession and out of possession. So I'd have a little warm-up, and then we'd do little running drills, dribbling, keeping it up, little technical games, again, in little groups of four. Leo was useless. Absolutely. He couldn't keep the ball up twice. Never mind. You've got to keep it up 10 times before you put the ball down, then sprint to the first con, come back, then the next one goes. So the one day I turn up and I pick the teams and we get down there and all of a sudden, Leo's team are all doing press-ups. So I'm going, what are you doing? So how many races are we having? 
Paul, we'll do our 40 press-ups now. We got Leo. (laughs) 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 But Chris, honestly, Josh, honest. Saturday, he was an absolute handful. I don't know how many goals he got that year for us. 15. Without it, yeah, 15. Without Leo, we wouldn't have got promoted and... He had his moments in respect of dipping a little bit, but you expect that from a player, from a young player who hadn't played league football before. But what a wonderful lad. A fabulous, fabulous lad. Looking to refresh your closet, home, or beauty routine this spring? Walmart's got all the stylish goods in one stop. From chic new looks and the latest makeup to quality furniture and tableware. Go to walmart.com slash now trending. That's walmart.com slash now trending for the hottest fashion, home, and beauty finds. Your style at Walmart. That team finished 91st, then you went up. I mean, I remember that season well because Plymouth went up in the playoffs with Neil Warnock. Yeah, Warnock, I can remember. Yeah, Yeah. We beat you 1-0 at Priestfield. You beat us 1-0 down there. Was it quite a level playing field at that level? And if you've got a few good players and you were well-managed... It was quite easy to turn the oh, team we had, around. We, Josh, we had people like Dave Martin. Dave Martin had been promoted more out of the lower leagues than any other player. I think he'd got about 10, 11 promotions. Mm-hmm. So he knew what it took to be promoted. A quick story about Dave. And we had Mark Harris from Swansea, signed big centre-half Mark Harris, who was a yeah. fabulous, fabulous player. Those two lads, I think we played Northampton on a Saturday and then we had the game on Tuesday. And on Saturday, Dave had had a horrendous challenge where he had to have about, I don't know how many stitches, just inside his shin bone. It was horrendous, absolutely horrendous. And I said to Wayne, Wayne Jones was a physio at the time, what do you think his chances are? And he says, listen, I'll keep him believing he can play, but he's not going to get away with playing with that. You know, it's stitched. It could open in the first challenge and it is a bad one. Didn't let him train on Monday, came out and watched what we were doing. Tuesday morning, we did a light session, did set plays, light session, and then we get to the game. And he's got his kit on. So he's my captain. So I said, Dave, what are you doing? He said, I'll be all right. So I said, well, Wayne's a little bit concerned and the doctor out. He said, leave it to me. I'm fine. So I said, okay, no problem. First tackle, he goes into a challenge. Honestly, you just couldn't believe it with a leg that's 16 stitches in. And he goes through the challenge and everything else. And it was as though he had nothing wrong with him. Blimey. He was such a warrior. And Mark yeah. Harris, the same. We played, and this has really summed the group up. Again, we played in a game where he went over on his ankle. And Josh, his ankle was twice the size after the game. And Wayne had him in Sunday, all day, icing it and trying to get it to move. He was such an important player for us, Mark. And on the Tuesday, again, it gone down a little bit, but all the tendons and the ligaments and everything else, Wayne thought they were in a bad way. He turned up, played. You'd never, ever oh, have really? thought he carried an injury. Today, I doubt for six yeah. months. Health and safety and everything, the millions of doctors and physios would be involved in it. They wouldn't allow the players to play. But at that yeah. time, you gave everything to the players. You actually gave that responsibility to the players and, those two incidents actually, I thought, epitomised the character within the group from the start right through to the end of the season. Yeah. Have you ever heard this quote from the Times on your Gillingham side that first season? The Times described them as an army of six-footers able to belt the ball into orbit and tackle themselves into a frenzy. 
warriors. <laughs> you get people who say things like that. And you get pigeonholed. We had some good players there. You don't win a league with not having good players. Dennis Bailey yeah. played for us. Dennis, what's his name, would score a hat-trick at Old Trafford yeah, and was course. a terrific footballer. Mark O'Connor, four foot six. We had Neil Smith, again, four foot six, playing the two wide players. So yeah. we had, I thought, some good quality there. But we also were very, very tough, very strong, down the middle of the pitch. I want to ask about yeah. one player, just clear up this rumour. I don't know if you've heard this rumour, but at the end of the 95-96 season, it's rumoured that Chairman Paul Scally had himself registered as a player if that last game of the season, it was all done, you were promoted, he wanted to bring himself on. Is that true? Yes, it is, but he never. It was a battle to stop stop him from playing, but he never. To be honest, the season finished. We had a week in Barbados. Scully took us all to Barbados. The lads were, they were lively, but they were a great group of lads. And when we went to Point Paul and announced that we were going to have a week in Barbados on the basis that we'd got promoted, I said to him, I'm not staying with the players. I'll come, but I'm not putting myself in that position that I'm going to be associated with a bunch of Herberts, not knowing what they're up to and what they're not up to. And we stayed in a hotel down the bottom of the road. They had one of the all-inclusives, and we stayed in a smaller hotel, the staff, Paul and the staff. And Dave Martin had rung me up on the Saturday and said, Gaffer, the lads are saying, are you going to come and have a drink of us? You've not had a a drink with us or whatever, whatever. Come up and have a drink. And even then, Chris, I'm thinking, have they got something sort of set up for me or whatever? I'll say to the boys, come on, we're going to have to go up there. So we get a taxi, we get to the hotel. We walk into the hotel and the manager's waiting for me and I'm thinking, oh my God, here we go. So he says, Tom, he said, I have never, ever experienced such a wonderful group of players. He said, we're a family hotel. He said, they have been fantastic. They've been fantastic with the kids, playing games, sorting games out. He said, we've got a wedding party from America. And he said, that is the one little downside of them being here. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, you know what the Americans are like? They think they can drink. They think they can party. They think they can do this, that, and the other. So the groom actually gets involved with the players the night before he's getting married. So they've got a yard of ale, Josh. So they've decided (laughs) you've got these six Americans. So the lads pick six of our best drinkers and they've got their six. So it's a yard of ale each who finishes first and it's got to be finished. That was the start. Then they got on to other stuff and other stuff and other stuff. Anyway, he said around about two o'clock in the morning, John, the only thing I can remember was your players grabbing him by his ankles. He's getting married that day. and pulling him across the hotel to his room and just leaving him outside the room. <laughs> he said, but the next day, obviously, they were all fabulous and Amazing. fantastic lads. That was a group of lads that I'd have been scared of being with. But, you know, yeah. how they behaved and the way they portrayed the football club was absolutely fantastic, Josh. One thing we've talked about before is there's a documentary about Gillingham in what is now League yeah. One, what is then yeah. Division Two, I think. Do you remember what the discussion of whether that documentary was going to happen, whether it was a good idea? Because I, th- I think you come out of it very well and stuff, but it's a big decision, right? To... Yeah, I think the chairman had more of a say than anything else. I think he wanted mm. to promote the club more, get the club moving. There's stuff in there that, um, and I've never 
Have you watched uh, for it? a long time? No, I never. I've listened to different parts of it, which are not <laughs> complimentary at times. But they're the way I was at that stage of my career. And like I say, I think the chairman's decision to almost bring the club out and make it more accessible and more knowledgeable to other supporters and other people was was the reason we did it. There's a bit where you're going for promotion, I think, is right. And you, you've got like two games left of the season. And then on the Sunday after a game, you do a marathon. Well, yeah. I decided I wanted to have a challenge at the end of the season for some reason. And I decided that, you know, the marathon would be, and I'd got some charity at the time that I was running for. And I will go on to it, but I've done a lot of things for the Donna Louise afterwards. But yeah. I just wanted to challenge myself as much as I've, set stalls out for players to achieve yeah. stuff. Physically, I've always wanted to challenge myself and doing yeah. the marathon. And I enjoyed it. It was brilliant. I could have done it that first one because I actually did two. I did one at 40 and one at 50. But the, the one that I did when I was at Priestfield, I actually enjoyed it and I could have done it quicker. But I'd been yeah. wary of going off too quick, Josh, and, and blowing up. But no, no, I enjoyed it. And then the following year, obviously, was the year that we got to Wembley and City beat us, which was a heartbreak, really. There's a weird detail where you met Seth Blatter at Preston versus Gillingham. Is that right? If I did, I can't remember. That was most probably, that team I had that year was as good a team in respect of balance that I've ever had. We signed Bob Taylor and Kawasaba and Paul Smith and Barry Ashby, four players from Brentford. We'd sold Akinbae and Jimmy Corbett. Addy went to Bristol City for how much? And Jimmy Corbett, who was only a young lad, went to Blackburn for a lot of yeah. money. And after the money we, yeah, half the money we spent, we actually spent on Bob and Cal, the other two lads, Ash and Smudger. Bob Taylor and Cal were fabulous. They were a fantastic pair. Bob was a very good player, but a confidence lad. He needed to play on the basis that people liked him, respected him, and he would be he'd be fine. First couple of games, we'd spent about 400000 on Bob. First couple of games, he was bloody awful. And I mean awful. <laughs> and one or two people started to moan. And now at Priestfield at the time, the commercial officer would always come in to me and say, who was man of the match? And the yeah. following week, they would announce who was man of the match. So I'd always say, Bob, and I knew he was bloody awful, but I'd say, Bob, man of the match. So anyway, it got to a stage of three or four games where I kept saying, Bob Taylor, Bob Taylor. So he'd run out before the game, getting warmed up, and they'd do man of the match from last Tuesday, and all the supporters had been there on the Tuesday. This was the Saturday. They'd go, Bob Taylor. So they'd be moaning and groaning and all. I did it for about, I don't know, Chris, for about a month. Just Bob Taylor, Bob Taylor. I get a knock on the door and it's Bob after Monday training. Gaffer, can I have a word? Yeah. He said, do me a favour, please. Stop putting me down as man of the match. (laughs) It's so embarrassing. And I said, Bob, start scoring goals, mate. As soon as you start scoring goals, I won't pick you. I'll pick someone else who's struggling and I'll make sure they're man of the match as well. (laughs) He scored 33 goals for you in 61 games. He's brilliant. Yeah. yeah, there's another great story as well. Mm. And this obviously flies in the face of people who pigeonhole you. At that time, we were asked if we needed a psychologist to come in and look at the players, look at their 
mentality towards training, towards games and this, that and the other. So anyway, we get a, a lady and this man come in. And they're lovely people, very organised, very well set up. They came in with a real plan of what they wanted to do. So we had them for a week. We decided we'd let them have full run of it for a week. So they yeah. watched them warm up. They watched them train on the training ground. Their reactions afterwards, everything for a full week. And then we played Wickham at Wickham. We play the game. They analyzed what they did, what they didn't do, and came back on the Monday with this full report. They didn't watch mm. the game. They did everything before the game and left. Because I said to them, I don't want you get involved in analyzing the game. That's my job. Leading up to it, you can have that. That's your week. So anyway, they come in on the Monday and they've got this chat. Absolutely unbelievable. Really interesting. Some stuff was interesting. But they graded the players 100%, yeah. 50%, 80%. He's totally committed. He does exactly what you should be doing and this, that, and the other. And right at the bottom, I think 15%, Bob Taylor. <laughs> so I turn around and I go, what was he that bad this week? She's gone, yeah, yeah, that's the one I would say really, really, really you need to sort out. We'd won 5-1 at Wickham and Bob had scored four goals. <laughs> I said, listen, I've got no problems and no issues with what you've done, but let me just tell you about football. This fella, when the whistle goes, that's when he starts. He's not interested in all the other stuff that fluffs around it. You know, his yeah. warm-ups... He wouldn't move. He'd just be kicking balls around it. But as soon as the game started, Chris, different person. Amazing. Different wow. person. He yeah. scores in that famous final. So Gillingham go 2-0 up, 81st, 87th minute. Yeah. Everyone who listens probably remembers Man City draw 2 off, eight, yeah. two 90th minute goals and then lose on yeah. penalties. Can you look back on that now as a great event in footballing history or is it still too painful? No, I've never watched the game back. I'm not a great person in respect of looking back. The one thing I can remember is Mark Saunders, who's, again, a wonderful, wonderful lad. Plymouth player. He's so, great. Oh, yeah, yeah, fabulous lad. He missed an header. He was fabulous in the air, Mark was. He missed an header to make it 3-0. It just went right past oh. the post just before they get the deflected goal, their first goal. My recollection is Mark missing that chance. And the other one was the fact that Mark Elsie, who was a Man City supporter, had given five minutes for injury time, which was unknown at that stage. But we'd gone away. We'd prepared absolutely fantastic. I'd run John Gregory up, who was manager at Aston Villa. And we spent three days at Villa's training ground. And we'd analysed everything at Man City. We'd played them twice. We'd watched games. We analysed everything that they did. And I made a massive, massive mistake. I didn't get, because we had a person who was actually getting into Man City's training ground, talking about BL, so this yeah. has been going on for hundreds of years. We actually got a person who was in Man City's training ground who could walk around and watch them train. The one thing I didn't do, I didn't analyse penalties. Oh, and no. I should have, because oh. we've Nick, Nicky Weaver, dived to the right-hand side every time. And I blame myself, really for all what went on and I missed that Chris that taught me a lesson everything else we were better than City on the day although Joe argues that we weren't but that was the one thing I missed because I oh, never yeah. ever thought in my mindset 
I thought we were going to win the game. I couldn't see anything else. I was absolutely convinced that this team was set up to win that game. You were so yeah. close. I wondered, I mean, as a fan, playoff games are so hard, but I wondered as a manager, after a defeat like that, when the players come into the dressing room, what do you even say? What? How do you begin to uh, you can't, you, It was very difficult because I'd been at the club then for four years, so the players were almost family to me. Yeah. And I can remember people crying in the dressing room as well through sheer disappointment. Players who were real, real tough lads and, and good characters just breaking down in tears because they'd missed out. The great thing was, and I left the club after that, but the great thing was the following year, they got promoted, they beat Wigan and then got promoted into the championship where they deserved to be and ended up being in the top 10 in the championship, that team, that group of players for a few years. And they deserved that because, like I say, as a group of players to work with and be around, yeah, they were fabulous. Is it easy to, when you've left the club, is it easy to watch them play out? Because you're so integral to that squad existing, if you know what I mean. I went to Priestville with Bristol City that following year. Yeah. They beat us 1-0. And Bristol City had just got relegated, I can remember. And had a decent side, had some good players. But Gillingham absolutely played us off the park. And Josh, for the first time, I'm looking at my Gillingham team as an opponent. You realise... Oh how good that group of players were. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? When you're working with them, at the time, you're always pushing and pushing and wanting more and wanting more and driving them and driving them, trying to be relentless with achieving what you should and could achieve, that you forget sometimes to take a step back and look and see what yeah. you've produced. I can remember coming back after that game thinking, you know, the balance within the team was fabulous. It was a great wow. team. It was a great team. Chris, do you want to end with a couple of fan club yeah. questions? We, we asked we asked our fan club to uh, send us some questions yep. for yourself. And I had this one from uh, Bob P, who says, "This is I'm fascinated by this question. Who is the best signing you've ever made?" There's too many. There's, you know, we've I've just talked about Dave Martin, who was fantastic getting Gillingham, Mark Harris, and people like that in that group, getting Gillingham out out of the league from being almost out of the league and dropping into non-league, they then we end up getting promoted the following year. After that, then you've got Essen Tyler and Bob, Sabs. There's so many players, Guy Butters, Ashby, Pennant. There's so many players who have done so, so well for me. Every club, I can actually put a marker down and say, I was really, really bowled over by his attitude, by his performances. and Fuller at Stoke. Unbelievable character. You could do a programme with me just on Fuller and I'll tell you some <laughs> stories that you just wouldn't believe. Yeah. So, Josh, I've been very, very fortunate to work. You know, the great thing, I've worked in the fourth division, I've worked in the Premier League and I've enjoyed everything about every club I've been at. Yeah, there's been disappointments and there's been stuff that you look back and you think, I wish I'd have done that a little bit differently. But then you soon get over that by the positives in respect of what players you've worked with, coaches you've worked with, people you've met and what you've achieved. And yeah, it's difficult to pick one, just one player. One question from Chris, which is, do you remember the first time you saw Rory Delap throw the ball? Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I can remember it because we'd had him for about six months and we didn't know he could throw the ball that far. And, and, and what happened, Josh? The lads had a competition going to see who could throw the ball the furthest across the pitch. And they were yeah. down. We'd finished training and they were at the top end. 
And Kempy was over with the lads listening to him messing around. They were betting each other 10 quid, I think. And he came over, he walked over to me, he said, have you seen Rory throw a football? I said, what? He said, have you seen him? So I said, no. So he said, come up, look at this. So I walked over there and he was reaching the back end of the goal. And I said, Rory, what are you doing? And he said, well, I was a champion javelin thrower. I think he brought it to Carlisle or whatever. So he's got very, very flexible shoulders. Yeah. I just couldn't believe it. So from that point onwards, we went, that'll do us. Yeah, we'll have a little bit of that. What an Especially when we play the likes of the top teams, they won't enjoy that. We end with the same question to all our guests, which is that if I gave you the option to, I'll give you a button, you hit it, you can go back in time to the 1st of January 1990 and relive the 90s and beyond all over again. Would you do it? No, I've, I've had such a wonderful career, right from 73, 74, I think, when I started, when I joined Bristol Rovers. My career, I couldn't have dreamt of it. It's been so brilliant in respect of me doing something that I've loved since I was a little boy and always dreamed of doing. So I've been very fortunate, Chris. Josh, you don't understand, or people don't understand, the amount of enjoyment you get. It's hard work, and at times it's really tough because of the criticism, because of the pressure and everything else. But you can wash all that away with the experiences, the stories, the people I've met, the places I've been, and a little bit of success along the way. Lovely to hear you talk, Tony. It's a joy. I always saw you as quite a scary manager, but when I started hearing you on Five Live, I was like, he's an absolute hoot. He's a right laugh. (laughs) (laughs) And you you brought the Five Live version. I'm delighted. (laughs) Brilliant. Thank you, Tony. Thank you very much. Cheers, Cheers, mate. There you go. That was Tony Pulis. I'd play for him. I would happily play for him. I don't think you're tall enough. (laughs) (laughs) Anarchy, I'm rubbish at like throwing long throws. I loved Tony Pulis. What a lovely bloke. If you want even more Quickly Kevin, you can get it over on the Quickly Kevin fan club. We're doing two bonus episodes every month and there's hundreds of hours of extra Quickly Kevin content on there. We've been doing bonus episodes for years. The full Steve, first Steve Bruce book, in full with Ivo Graham and we're most of the way through the second book right now. So if you want to listen to all that good stuff, you can sign up to the Quickly Kevin fan club. Head over to anotherslice.com forward slash Quickly Kevin. Right, quick quiz. Okay, we're going to do a variant on starting 11. It's very easy. Uh, it's it's Tony Pulis's career starting 11. <laughs> I want any of the teams he's managed or played for. Chris to start. We should probably caveat we're recording this quite a way after the main interview. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. We haven't just forgotten everything <laughs> that we've talked about. Yeah, yeah. That would be rude if we finished the interview with Pulis. No, this is probably, that was recorded a couple of months ago. Who's going first? Me? Yeah. Stoke? Yeah. 2002 um, to 2005 and 2006 to 2013. Uh, Plymouth Argyle. 2005 to 2006. Gillingham. Gillingham, correct. Plymouth were kind of a rebat. He was obviously meant to be with Stoke and they split up, had a dalliance with Plymouth and then got back together with his true love. Um, anyway, Gillingham, 95 to 99. Uh, West Brom? Yes. 15 to 17. Bristol City. Correct, 99 to 2000. Bournemouth. 
Yes, he played for Bournemouth uh, and he managed them 92 to 94 and 86 to 89 and 90 to 92. He played for them. He also played for Gillingham. How many are left? Three separate clubs he played for. And oh, you could have played for as well. Yeah. Why is that going to help you? Yeah. Um, one and about four that he managed. He played for like Hong Kong. I'm going to need more than Hong Kong. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> because the club played the club played in the Hong Kong First Division. Um, I'm sure there's a quirk. There's a quirk to Tony Pulis's career. I think I'm sure there's one club he was at for almost no time at all, and I think it might be Crystal Palace as a manager. Correct, 2013-14. Portsmouth. Yes, no, 2000. It's been one-way traffic. It feels like Michael's confidence has really got Chris yeah. on the ropes from day one. We haven't got his first club, have we? Or have we got his first club? We've got his first managerial club. But not his first playing club? Not his first playing club. No, we've had Bournemouth, Gillingham and Hong Kong so far. Come on now. Chris, I'm going to have to rush you. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to get it. I, I, did, he play for, did he play for Bristol Rovers, did he? Did he start out at Bristol Rovers? Correct! Astonishing! What a turnaround! Oh, wow. So remember, we talked in the interview about him in Holloway, wasn't it? Oh my god, that yeah. is something else. Right, Michael, we're going to need something off you. No, I don't. I don't have... I don't have... Okay. Uh, go on, Chris. Did he manage Middlesbrough right there? He did manage Middlesbrough. Oh, he, he did. Sheff Fuck. And then he managed Sheffield Wednesday, and he played for Newport, and of course he played for Happy Valley. Happy Valley. Oh, Chris. Otherwise known as Hong Kong. Kong. I'll otherwise um, known as Hong Kong. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for this week. We'll be back next week with Mark Watson. We'll talk Bristol City, keeping it West Country. Until then, uh, thank you to James Berlin for this, who says, Night, night, Alan Wright. Go, Ledge! Hit, Ledge! Hit, Ledge over the top!